You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shalach. Shalach is the fourth portion in the book of Numbers, in the book of Bamidbar, and the 37th portion since the beginning of the Torah. We have 119 verses, 1,540 words, and 5,820 letters. There are five commandments in this week's parsha, three performative and two prohibitions. So, this is a packed parsha. It's a parsha that is like almost none other. We have the story of the spies. So the Jewish people insist on investigating the promised land. Upon Hashem's approval, Moshe appoints 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes, to scout out the land. Is the land good or bad, fertile or not? Are the inhabitants numerous or few? Are they strong or weak? Are the cities fortified or merely encampments? Moshe, concerned with this mission, changes Hosea's name to Yehoshua as a prayer to protect him. After a 40-day probe, Of the entire land, the spies return with enormous fresh fruit from the land of flowing milk and honey and a depressing report about the land that devours its people, the mighty inhabitants of the land, the fortified cities, and even giants they saw in the land. The nation lost its faith in Hashem and Moshe. Two spies, Yehoshua and Kalev, tear their clothes and report that the land is very, very good. They tried to elevate the spirits of the people, saying that Hashem is with us and we can easily conquer the land. The Jewish people are in despair and believe the negative reports. They cry to Moshe and don't want to go to the promised land and prefer returning to Egypt. Hashem asks Moshe, how long will they provoke me? Hashem is angered and wants to get rid of the Jewish people. Moshe's intense prayers saves the nation from heavenly annihilation. Hashem forgives the Jewish people, but decrees 40 years of wandering in the desert, and those who wept will not live to enter the land. The spies who spread the evil report against the land died in a plague. The people are remorseful and realize their horrible mistake in not having faith in Hashem and they are sad. Moshe explains that it is too late, and they will not merit to enter the land. They will all die in the desert. Hashem tells Moshe to turn around and head back towards the desert. Moshe warns them not to proceed. The people wanted to go into the land of Israel. Moshe says, don't do it. Don't try. Don't try to push your way. Hashem said, no, it's not going to work. A defiant group tries to enter the land of Israel through the Amori Mountains against Moshe's words. And they are ambushed and heavily defeated by the Canaanite and Amalekite nations. Then the Torah continues with the Mincha, the libations. Moshe is instructed concerning certain offerings the Jewish people will bring when they enter the land of Israel. They must be accompanied by a special gift of meal offerings and wine libations. Then we're commanded about the challah. Hashem instructs Moshe to teach the Jewish people that when they enter and eat the bread of the promised land, they should set aside a portion for Hashem, which is then given as a gift to the Kohen. 
Now, what happens for unintentional sins? In this week's Parsha, we learn if a group or individual sin inadvertently, they must bring a special offering. Intentional and unintentional idol worship are discussed there as well. Then we have a story of Shabbos desecration. A man was found violating Shabbos by gathering wood. The people brought him to Moshe and Aaron, and they asked Hashem to clarify what should be done to this individual, and he is executed as Hashem commands. And then lastly, the parsha ends with the mitzvah of tzitzis. The people are commanded to wear fringes on the corners of a four-cornered garment as a daily reminder of all mitzvahs of the Torah. Additionally, we remember the exodus from Egypt and to have firm knowledge of Hashem each and every day. So this concludes the weekly Parsha review, and now we get to the important meat of the Parsha that needs to be elaborated. Some important lessons. So why are they condemned for testifying as they perceive the land? I see it. You asked me to be the spy. So this is the way I see it. Why are you punishing me? So there's something which is so fundamental that is important for us to always recognize, and we talked about this last week, and we talked about this the week before. It's important for us to have a constant recognition of the things that happen around, happen around us. When something happens around us, there's a reason we needed to see it. There's a reason we needed to hear about it. And you need to take a lesson from it. Here we see that the spies did not take a lesson from what we ended last week's Torah portion with. What did we end last week's Torah portion with? Miriam. Miriam speaks Lashon Hara about her brother Moshe, and she's punished. And here, the spies are speaking Lashon Hara about the land of Israel. They didn't take that lesson. But there's something more to it is that the struggle of everything needing to make sense. And then we lose trust in Hashem. If I need to understand everything, everything needs to be clear to me of how it's going to work out. How is it going to fit in? How is it going to make sense? Nothing will succeed in life. The minute we're able to relinquish that power and understand that Hashem has the ability to do things that are way beyond our comprehension. Hashem has the ability to do things that don't make sense to me. Like the splitting of the sea, like the ten plagues, or the thousands and thousands of miracles the Jewish people experienced in the desert. Every single day they had mana. Does that make sense? But you get used to it. We get used to the, the things that are abnormal as if they're normal. The fact that our heart beats the way it beats doesn't make sense. It's a miracle, but we're used to that miracle. So we think it's just that's the way it is and that's the way it needs to be. No. We have to realize that every miracle that we experience is Hashem's desire that it be so. And therefore, a person should never be in doubt. Because doubt means I don't trust that Hashem can solve this problem. Oh, this is too big for Hashem. Hashem can't handle this. 
There's nothing that Hashem cannot handle. And therefore, this is one of the tragic episodes of the entire Torah. That the leaders of the tribes fell to a point where everything became natural. And they couldn't see the supernatural that they were living in. Everything that was going on around them was supernatural. It says in Deuteronomy, it says, don't stray after your eyes. Our sages explain, don't limit yourself to what you can see. I, you know, how many times does a person sign a business deal and it makes sense, everything makes sense, and then it all falls apart? And how many times do people sign business deals that don't make sense and everything succeeds? We have this all the time. But if a person is willing to live in an existence with Hashem, they'll see miracles every day. They'll see kindness every day. They'll see the greatness of Hashem every day. That needs to be our goal. That needs to be our mission. And this was the shortfall of the spies. It needed to make sense to them. You're right. They had fortified cities. They had giants living in the land. It was supernatural. And you know what? Yes, it's Eretz Ocheles Yoshveha. It is a land that devours its people. That's correct if you don't follow its laws. It's the only land that if you don't follow the laws of the land, it'll spit you out. My grandfather, I remember this as clear as day when the Gulf War broke out and then when the Intifada broke out and you had all of these people who were living in the United States uh, had their children in yeshiva in Israel and they said, get on a plane, come back home. My grandfather said that lack of amuna, that lack of trust in Hashem is exactly what the Torah says, the land that spits out its people. It spits you out. It gives you different excuses, but it spits you out because you don't really live with true emuna. You don't have a clear knowledge that Hashem is there to protect you. It's a land that doesn't operate the way any other place on planet Earth operates. And that's what they failed to see. Hashem doesn't operate by the laws of nature. He is the laws of nature. So he can change the laws of nature. And they had a difficulty seeing that. It's like, how can I go about this endeavor if I don't have that money in the bank? I asked my rabbi once, he had 13 children, Rav Beryl Eisenstein, Zechat Tzadik Levrocha, of blessed memory. I said, Rebbe, how do you pay for the weddings? 13 weddings. That's unbelievable. And in Israel, for the girls, you have to buy an apartment. How do you do it? He says, I write the check. Hashem has to cover it. I write the check and Hashem has to cover it. It has to make sense. Nothing makes sense. The whole land of Israel doesn't make sense. And how every family is buying for their girls an apartment, that doesn't either make sense. 
But that's the reality. It's unbelievable because they're willing to live in a different existence of godliness. That's what the spies were deficient in. The trust in Hashem. Hashem sees things differently and can do anything. Anything. Now, we've talked about this previously, the power of names. We see that Moshe changed Yehoshua's name from Hosea to Yehoshua, adding the name of Hashem, the Yud, to his name. So this will be like a prayer, Hashem, please protect him. It's also interesting that most of the times when people changed names, like Avram became Avraham, or Sarai became Sarah, Yaakov became Yisrael. But it's very interesting that here is the first time I believe that the name was changed in the beginning of the name. The Yud was added in the beginning, not at the end. Avram's name was towards the end of his name, the, the Hey. Sarah, Sarai became Sarah, the end of the name. At the beginning of the name, Yehoshua, because he had Hashem in the forefront of his existence. He had the name of Hashem constantly in his presence at all times. It was right in front of him. But there's a power to the names. There's a tremendous power our sages tell us. You know, even some of you may have heard of Uncle Maishi. Uncle Maishi is a very well-known children's artist. He sings songs for children. You can look them up on Spotify. They're fantastic, fabulous, educational. They are meaningful. They're spiritual. They're great for the kids. Uncle Maishi. And my children love them. I sometimes sing along as well. And it's great Jewish songs, but he always had a focus on Jewish names. Interesting. His songs always had a focus on Jewish names. What's your Jewish name? What's your Jewish name? Because having a Jewish name is one of the important saviors of the Jewish people. There were three qualities that the Jewish people possessed that because of those qualities, they merited to their exodus from Egypt. They didn't change their names. They didn't change their language. And they didn't change their way of dressing. They communicated in the same holy language of the Torah. They didn't become Egyptians. They kept their own language. They didn't change their names. They didn't come become Abdullah or Muhammad. He stayed Moshe and he stayed Yaakov and he stayed Avraham and he stayed Yosef. They kept their Jewish names and they didn't start dressing like them. And I think in our generation, these three principles are so important. They're so important for us to maintain our Jewish identity, maintain our Jewish names. There are many people who give their children on their passports, they give them secular names. So like, so they're not going to know when he comes with the yarmulke and they say, uh, Jeffrey, they're not going to know that he's, that he's Jewish. Come on. Right. But it's the, I don't know why people do it, but I, I was very, very insistent that my children, Every single one of them have their Hebrew Jewish name on their passport. 
nothing has changed. Then when I he didn't suddenly become, you know, Dustin overnight. His name stays. It's very important. The name of a person is his essence. So we talked a little bit about how it devours its in, its inhabitants, the land of Israel, the power of the land of Israel. But I think it's important for us to know that there's a certain holiness of the land of Israel. My mother, may she live and be well, you can wake her up at three in the morning and say, we're going to Israel. She's like, okay, let's go quickly, quickly. Because she loves Eretz Yisrael. She loves the land of Israel. It's such a holy place. It's such a precious place. She can't get there fast enough. But with acquiring the land of Israel comes challenge. The Talmud tells us that it's one of the four things that are acquired with difficulty. You go to Israel, there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of challenge. It's not going to be easy. People all the time, I get people here in our community say, oh, I'm going to make Aliyah. And I just want to be a little the, the, the sober person in the room and give them some of what the reality is going to be. Not because I don't want them to make Aliyah. I just don't want to make, them to make Aliyah to go to Israel and hate it and then never want to go back. And I have too many students who did that, where they went to Israel all excited, all enthusiastic, all Zionistic, all idealistic. They're going, they're going, they're going. And then they meet up with all the difficulties, the bureaucracy, the waiting, you know, in the Misrata Pnim, the interior ministry, and waiting at the at the health ministry, and waiting for this document, waiting for that document. And you can't apply for this because you don't have that, and you can't get that because you don't have this. It's like the, the bureaucracy is is really insane. But that's the way it's supposed to be. To acquire the land of Israel is not going to be easy. You think you could just pack your bags and move to Israel and everything's going to be perfect? Only those who are really, really committed are those who are going to succeed there. And we see so many who are also Yodim, who we make Aliyah means to elevate, to go up to Israel. But then there are Yodim, those who go down from Israel. They come, they move to the United States, they move to wherever they move around the world. And there's an amazing transformation going on in the world today, in the Jewish world today, where more and more religious are moving to Israel and more and more secular are leaving Israel. Because for a secular Jew, if they don't believe in the Torah, then they can just live in California. Why should they live in Israel? It has no meaning. Tovah ha'aretz me'od me'od. Joshua and Kalev, what do they say about the land of Israel? It's a very, very good land. It's a very, very special land. It's very in every extreme, in every way. In it being so holy, in being so special, but also being so difficult to acquire. It's not an easy task to just, but today, on the other hand, it's very easy to just buy a ticket and go to Israel to visit, and I highly recommend every one of you sitting here, every, every one of you online, make an effort. Buy a ticket and go to Israel. It's not too late. You're not too old. Go and visit. Spend some time. It's our heritage. It's our homeland. It's our place. 
In fact, I was on a bus about uh, 15 years ago with a group from Houston. And as we get to the hills of Jerusalem, and we're about to, we're starting to see the houses of Jerusalem, everyone is getting watery-eyed. Everyone's tearing up. I got on the microphone and I said, why is everyone getting so emotional? What is with Jerusalem that everybody cries in Israel, in Jerusalem? There's something about the holiness of the place that just transforms us into such an emotional state. So I'll explain to you. It says that the source of our neshama descends to the world by the Kodesh HaKadoshim, by the Holy of Holies, and then travels to wherever we are. And that's why when we pray, what do we do? We pray towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. Why? Because our prayers ascend to the heavens that way as well. What happens when we get to Jerusalem is we suddenly realize we're getting closer to our source. That touches us in a way that's incomparable. You can't compare it to anything else on, on earth. You just feel such a sense of, I'm home. I'm here. This is my land. You won't find this going to Delaware or even Des Moines, Iowa. You won't find it anywhere except for the Holy Land of Israel. This is our homeland. We have to understand that, look at the struggle that's going on here. This is not, it's not natural for there to be such a struggle among the Jewish people about going to our land. What's the big deal? Because there's always going to be a struggle going to the land of Israel. We see that Moshe doesn't either merit to go into the land of Israel. It's not so simple. However, today when it is easier for us to do it, it's easier for us to just go on United and buy a ticket. We should take that opportunity. It's a privilege that we have that we should not let go of. So what happens when you cry in vain? The Jewish people cried because they heard this terrible report about the land of Israel, but it was in vain. It was false. Hashem says, you cried? I'll give you what to cry about. And that was on the day of Tisha B'Av. And that forever became a day of mourning for the Jewish people. Both of our temples were destroyed on that day. Many terrible, terrible decrees Many terrible massacres happened on that day. And it's a day of absolute mourning for the Jewish people. Why? Because you cried in vain. You didn't need to cry. I'll give you something to cry about. It's an important thing for us to realize that we're laying down foundations for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren, and the more we're able to instill positivity, we're able to instill good values, good morals, good ethics, like our Torah teaches us, what we're doing for our children is the greatest, giving them the greatest gift in the world. But sometimes if we make that mistake, like crying in vain, we give them an inheritance of that same 
sadness that same morning. So another thing is that we see in this week's Parsha that there are consequences. There are consequences. The people changed their mind and Hashem didn't allow them to enter the land. They said, oh, we realized we made such a grave mistake. It's so terrible. How can we have made such a mistake? We want to go into the land of Israel. Sorry, the doors are closed to you. You know, we're living in a generation that doesn't have any consequences. And it's terrifying because this is the way a society gets torn apart. Where there's no consequences. When someone steals and isn't held accountable, when someone murders and isn't held accountable, when someone does a crime and isn't held accountable, that's when you have immorality. That's when you have that there's no more value to doing the right thing because you could do whatever you want. It's a free-for-all. And we're going to decide where we cast judgment and where we don't. We decide, to you, we're going to follow the Lord. To you, we're just not going to look. Or we'll look and we're not going to do anything about it. It's a terrible thing. My Rebbe once told me an amazing story. He was learning with the great, I think it was Reb Simcha Wasserman, who was the son of Reb Hanun Wasserman from Baranovich, who had a big yeshiva. And uh, his son eventually made it to America, you know, after the war, and opened up a yeshiva in California, in Los Angeles. And my Rebbe was a young child at the time, and he had the privilege of learning with him. He was like 12 years old. So he was learning with him, but he was, it was a summer month, so it was a summer break. I had an opportunity to learn with a great scholar, a great sage. But the kids were playing footsies under the table. The kids were, you know, just two boys were learning together with the rabbi, and they were playing, uh, playing around. The rabbi got up, closed his book, and left. And the boys went running after him. Nothing changed. He walked straight home, went into his house, and closed the door. And the kids are like, so, so, I'm sorry. Sorry. You know what my rabbi said? I never did that again. I never did that again. Why? Because a consequence is painful. And pain is a language. A language that we understand very, very well. And sometimes we say, okay, and we just threaten. They didn't learn their lesson. Children need to understand that if they do something right, they'll be rewarded. They do something wrong, they'll be punished. And don't say, okay, I won't punish you this time. But next time I will. They didn't learn their lesson from that. It has to sting one time. And that's how they learn their lesson. And here the Jewish people are learning how Hashem deals with us. You made a grave mistake with the golden calf. It seems like you didn't learn your lesson. This time you're going to learn your lesson. And you're not going to go into the land of Israel. Okay, so this is, I think, a very, very fundamental principle. A very fundamental principle about education. Okay, another couple of things here is the challah. What is the challah? The challah is what we call the bread, but that's not really what it is. Challah is the part that you take away from the bread and you give to God. But look how beautiful the Jewish people are. That we love the mitzvah so much that we name our bread after the mitzvah we do with the bread. 
It's not challah. You, you go in the store and you buy challah. No, you're buying bread. We call it challah because of the mitzvah we do with it. That's how special the mitzvahs are. That we name our food for the mitzvah that we do with that food. It's a very special thing. We, we call our bread challah. It's a special thing. So then we see the intentional idolater. What does it say about someone who serves idolatry intentionally? It says that he'll be cut off from his people. He'll be cut off from his people. So we see this terminology many times in the Torah. We see it regarding Shabbos observance, someone who desecrates the Shabbos as well. You'll be cut off from your people. It doesn't say that. So our sages explain that they're cutting themselves off. When someone lives in a in an environment that doesn't have Shabbos, so in essence what they're doing to themselves is cutting themselves off from the Jewish people. Someone, I have a friend of mine who decided he wants to move out of the neighborhood. So they moved a few miles out of the neighborhood. You know what they did? They cut themselves off from the community. And then they're wondering why people don't reach out to them. You cut yourself off from the community. What are you supposed And of course we're going to reach out. We're going to try to do whatever we can. But you physically removed yourself from a community. Your children are not going to have Jewish friends now. Your children are not going to have Shabbos in a community. Your children, and it was so sad that the person did it to themselves. What, when Hashem says in his Torah that you'll be cut off from your people, you're going to cause yourself to be cut off from your people. It's something that we see. We have to be so careful. We talked about this in our Living Jewishly podcast, that if the congregation stands, you should stand. If the congregation sits, you should sit. Don't be different than the community to fit into the community. That doesn't mean you can't be unique. That doesn't mean you can't be special. But don't go away from the community. Don't push yourself out of the community. Be part of the Jewish people. That's the strength of the Jewish people. We're one people. We're one nation. We're one soul. We're united. That doesn't mean we get along every day of the week. But at least we're unified. We're one. When someone serves idolatry, what they're doing is they're cutting themselves off from their people. And then finally, we have the mitzvah of tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis is supposed to be a constant reminder, a constant reminder of our connection with Hashem, of its mitzvah, Sulman Tizkiru. You should remember Hashem's commandments. You should remember the exodus from Egypt. Ani Hashem Elokeichem Emet. I am Hashem. That's what the tzitzis is supposed to do. Say, just tell us there's supposed to be a blue string. Now today we lost the tradition of where this blue string comes from. There are some people who claim that they have it, but my rabbi said that we don't, we don't know and therefore we don't do it. Halacha says that it should be blue because it's blue like the ocean. The ocean like the heavens, the heavens like God's throne, and a person every time he sees the blue will remember God's throne. The idea here is that tzitzis is not supposed to just be a garment. Oh, it looks nice. Okay, great. I'm going to go out of my day. Tzitzis is meant to be tassels that remind us. Every time we look at them, they're supposed to remind us. 
You know, I told you the story. I was in Costco and this man came over to me and said, can I hold your tzitzis? Can I touch them? So I got an email yesterday from a listener, a podcast listener. I want to thank him. He said, look up the verse in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Listen to this amazing verse. Ko amar Hashem, so said Hashem, in those days, the days that will come, where 10 people from every language will hold, and they will hold their cloak, the corner of a cloak of a Jewish person. Lamor saying, We want to go with you. Because we heard that God is with you. I think it's unbelievable. I saw this. I was like, what? I can't believe this is a prophecy that such a thing will happen. Where Hashem says there's a day will come where the nations of the world not only physically will touch our tzitzis and say, oh, you're the people of Hashem. We want to be with you. But also conceptually that the nations of the world will come to the Jewish people and say, teach us. Teach us Torah. Teach us the ways of Hashem. And that prophecy is also coming to fruition. Where we have classes that we're teaching to Noahides, where we have so many people who are interested in connecting more with Hashem. They realize that the idolatry that they served for years in their churches are all false where you're not allowed to ask questions, where you're not allowed to confront with a contradiction. No such thing. People realize, one second, in Judaism, it's all about confronting and asking questions. Look at every page of Talmud. It's about inquiring. One second, how can you say this? You say that over there. One second, we have to resolve this. We have to figure it out. Because there's no contradictions in the Torah. The Torah is a perfect document, a God-given document. And it's ours to enjoy. My dear friends, have an amazing Shabbos. So I want to just bring out one point that that I, I remembered from what you were saying. So when the spies come back with their with their statements, they finish off their statements saying, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of the giant from among the Nephilim. We were in our eyes like grasshoppers, and so we were in their eyes. You hear that verse? Let's hear that again. We were in our eyes like grasshoppers, comma, and so we were in their eyes. When you think low, this is psychology 101, when you think low of yourself, others think low of you. And that was the problem. They didn't realize their value. This is what they said. They didn't realize their problem. They didn't realize who they were. You didn't realize you're... I'm Yisrael, you're a Jewish people. You're not on the same playing field as everyone else. If you think low of yourself, that's tragic.